Welcome to episode six of Shine, a podcast by Star. And today we have a massive episode for you focused on digital therapeutics. Now, we're joined, of course, by a star expert, David Box, who leads Star's health and wellness practice, along with three external experts. So I'm going to quickly run through them. We have Sharon Patel, we have David Cox, and we have Matt Omenic, all of which will be introducing themselves in a second. So we're going to jump right into that discussion shortly. But before that, if you are interested in the healthcare space, in the future of healthcare, then Star has an awesome trend report for you. It's called Beyond Just the Pill, Nine Emerging Trends in Disrupting Healthcare. If you would like access to that report, simply send an email to healthcare at star.global. That's healthcare at star.global. And at the same time, if you are interested in the future of healthcare, then you also will definitely enjoy a recent episode we released on the future of telehealth. So you can simply search for telehealth star in your favorite podcast listening app to see that. Or of course, if you're listening on a podcast listening app, you can just scroll up or down our list of episodes. And with that, let's jump right into the discussion and we'll start off by introducing our external healthcare experts. So let's quickly start off with a brief interview from each of the people in the discussion. And we're going to start with our star experts on the topic, David. Thanks, Tom. And thank you for moderating today's uh, talk. And thank you to our guests for joining us. My name is David Box, and I'm STARS Managing Director of our Health and Wellness Vertical, where we're focused on digital health and life science products and bringing these products to market. We work with our customers to strategize, design, and engineer digital healthcare and life science products. I've been in the business for about the past 12 years. And by way of background, I have come up in the marketing side of the business, the sales and marketing side of the business, as well as innovation in working with our clients to identify areas of opportunity and help them come up with creative software solutions to fix these business problems. Thank you very much, David, number one. And now David, number two, <laughs> not in any kind of order. David Cox, please have a, could we have a brief intro? Yeah. Hi, I'm David Cox. One letter different to David Box. I originally trained as a physician here in London and worked for several years in the emergency room. And then since then have spent over 10 years now looking at the intersection between technology and healthcare and increasingly trying to focus the use of new technologies on population level health challenges in various different guises. Uh, most recently working as a, as a co-founder of a, a startup looking to create new uh, treatment types that a single prescription that gives a patient access to both pharmaceutical and digital therapies. Amazing. And now to Shwaran. Hey guys. Uh, so first off, thanks again for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on. By way of background, I guess unusually for a doctor, I had a life before medicine. Uh, I was lucky enough to have to sink my teeth into a couple of business ventures at a young age. So I took that experience into med school where I spent quite a lot of time, maybe too much time than I cared to say, scratching my head, trying to figure out how to blend everything I wanted to do. 
thankfully, in the kind of late 2000s, digital health started to blossom. And so I kind of found my spiritual home. And fast forward in time, uh, the preceding years, I've been fortunate to have brought a couple of successful digital health products to market. Now I work with health technology firms doing the same thing, as well as health providers, helping them navigate what this new digital health landscape actually is and how to, to play in it. And over to Matt. Hi, everyone. Great to be here. Uh, my name is Matt Omernick, and I'm co-founder and the chief creative officer at Achille Interactive. We're a digital therapeutics company. And my background is not in healthcare. I guess unless you maybe count the last eight years with Achille, but uh, I come from the entertainment industry. And so I've worked with as an exec and creative director at companies like DreamWorks, Electronic Arts, Microsoft, Lucasfilm. And so I really bring kind of engagement aspect to our digital therapeutics at Achille. Okay, thank you. I understand we could probably spend the whole 45 minutes talking about why this is interesting, but it would be good to just give the audience context as to why this field is starting to gain more prominence. Like what are the core benefits of using software over a biological molecule to treat a disease? I would say there are a few core benefits, uh, not least of which is the ubiquity of smartphones and people's access to the digital therapeutic. And in particular, it's like a, in a sense, like a smart drug, right? Because it's a tablet that can remind you when you haven't taken it. It's a tablet that you can take whenever you feel like, uh, often as often as you feel like, unlike the tablet that the doctor prescribes in the biopharmaceutical space where, you know, there are very strict rules about how much and when and how often and in fact, you know, we know globally that people are pretty bad at following those rules to the extent that 50% of people don't take their tablets as prescribed. So I think there's a, a certainly a big benefit there in terms of ease of access and, you know, ease of distribution, as it were. I can jump in as well. I think definitely the ubiquity of smartphones, as you point out, and the kind of smart factors is a really huge part of it. I think safety is worth mentioning here too, especially when you're, you know, comparing to pharmaceuticals. You know, at Achille, our, our first digital therapeutic product is in the form of a consumer quality video game. And so we recently received uh, FDA and CE mark, and doctors are actually now prescribing the first video game in history, which is really crazy cool. But there's a long list of why a video game for us was a great vessel with which to deliver kind of our first medicine, which is in pediatric ADHD. And another part of it is the the personalization and customization of the experience, right? And the video games really, if you boil them down, that's what they are, is they're potent experiences. And so the ability to have that, have the game itself adapting rewards and content at a very, very fine degree to that particular individual and picking the exact right challenge level for them is so powerful. So that anyone that experiences or takes that pill, they're getting a completely different pill and it changes every single day for them and for them alone. So that the personalization, customization, I think is, is worth noting as well. Okay. David Cox, I'd like to go over to you because I believe you were the chief medical officer at Headspace. And Headspace itself, I understand, is not a digital therapeutic. But I think that example that, that you gave previously may help the audience understand the difference between something that can help like aid your health and a digital therapeutic, if you'd mind sharing. Yeah, absolutely. So Headspace is an app that anybody can download and it has some free content and some paid for content. And there's a growing amount of scientific evidence that suggests that uh, meditating on a regular basis has various different psychological and even physical health benefits to do with uh, reduction in stress, 
increased ability to focus, some different psychological relationships with difficult experiences or, or emotions. So I kind of liken that to an over-the-counter thing. You can go into the pharmacy and, and you know buy the thing over-the-counter without needing a prescription by your doctor. Headspace now also has Base Health, which is a division of Headspace that is looking to create a version of the app that has been through the sort of rigorous scientific studies in the same way that a drug, a tablet normally would, to show that it is safe and to show that it is effective. And then that will be something that can be prescribed. And so it's, uh, as it were, the prescribed thing, which has a particular condition that it's seeking to treat and evidence to show that it does so in a safe and effective way. So it's not a kind of self-serve thing in that respect. That might be something that you go to your doctor suffering with an illness and your doctor prescribes you headspace as the or part of the therapies for the illness that you have. Okay. And that leads quite nicely onto the next topic, which is to go from the over the counter to be something that can be prescribed. I believe there's a, a regulatory hurdle that we need to get across. And actually, we have some people on the call here that have experience of going through that slash in the process of going through that. So I'd actually send this question over to Matt, if possible, to talk about the challenges faced with getting regulated at the digital therapeutic and also the strategies in which you can take to do that. Sure. When we started the company, we knew from the very beginning that we wanted to take that path, that we knew it was going to be long and expensive. There's plenty of precedence to be confident that that would be true. But we knew it was really important, not just for Achille and for our products, because we knew from the inception of this technology that this was real medicine. This was real direct treatment. This was actually changing the physiology of the brain, which is so important. So we decided early on that taking that kind of large, big, expensive route through regulatory path and having this be prescribed projects product was important for Achille and important, frankly, for the industry, which you know, still, I don't even think it was called digital therapeutics until just a few years ago, right? And I think we're still, as we know, defining this. But we knew that this was a different, big new category of medicine and a different way to treat people. And so uh, we thought it was important to use that system to define that this, again, was real medicine by going through that path. So definitely challenging, definitely took a long time. And I think for us, at least at Achille, the primary reasons were that this was entirely new, right? There was not an existing category at FDA where this fits right in. And so the kind of education and the the building of the trials, I think we've, as a company, have run over 30 clinical trials at this point. And for our pediatric ADHD product, that was five clinical trials dedicated to that, including one large pivotal trial that was, yeah, again, looked just like a drug trial, totally randomized control, 300 patients. And, you know, that takes time, that takes effort, that takes, you know, development of the product to be able to work that way. So once we kind of figured out how to use what looks and feels like a video game in a clinical trial, which was its own challenge from the very beginning, uh, we all pull that and replicate that many times and build this body of evidence that, that is really just unassailable. And once we got that point, you know, then you move to the FDA. And you know, one of the difficult things with the FDA is there's no promise of timeline. Uh, you submit and you don't know. <laughs> you get some questions along the way, you answer questions, and then you wait a few more months and you get some more questions. So that process of as a business, not knowing if and when that was going to actually happen, right, was, was very unusual, especially for me coming from the entertainment biz, when you have a very hard deadline and a budget and, you know, the, the commercials for the movie is coming out on March 25th, so it better be done. So anyway, I think some of the challenges, you know, for us were really just that, that because this was an unknown and, you know, taking that time and having the patience and, and building that evidence 
but uh, we're really glad we did. And to David's point earlier too about Headspace, like we want to be clear, we are well beyond ADHD company. We're really trying to help anyone across the world with cognition in general. But that doesn't mean that every single one of our products has to be prescription or go the FDA route. There are certain populations in certain areas that we think it makes sense to go more over the counter as well. And I would like to throw this back over to David Cox, who I believe has been engaged with or is going through the process in the UK in terms of regulation. The regulatory thing is, is interesting, right? Because regulators care that what you are offering to the market, to the patient, does what it purports to do. So, you know, it's not just snake oil, it actually does help and that it does that in a safe way. So it doesn't cause more harm than good. It doesn't damage people unduly. And that's an appropriate thing to have, right? And particularly when, you you know, we were inventing uh, compounds or sourcing them from nature or whatever, and you start putting them into human beings and you want to have a really robust evidence base that shows that actually, you know, it's not just uh, the placebo effect. It really is helping or curing the condition. And it's also not doing all sorts of other harms along the way that outweigh the benefit that it does. So from the regulator's perspective, they're basically approaching digital therapeutics, software as, as therapy in exactly the same way. They want to know that it has a real effect, more so than placebo or random chance. And they want to know that it isn't having any negatives, undue negative side effects. From their perspective, it's just a, a kind of different class of therapy. It is a different class of therapy. So they're kind of scratching their heads a little bit or have been to understand how to assess these things. And that's why I think a lot of the digital therapeutics companies have basically said, well, look, we're going to try to make this as easy as possible for the regulators. And we're, we're going to copy the same process that uh, pharmaceutical compounds go through, the same type of trial and so on and so forth. But, you know, there are conversations around, is that strictly necessary? You know, one of the benefits of software is the massive volume of people that you can put through it versus, you know, putting a tablet through a trial where you need to get people in effectively laboratory conditions or or whatever. Then the flip side is actually, in turn, having gone through the pain and the expense and the time of doing the regulatory stuff, well, that's a kind of stamp of approval for the digital therapeutic thing, right? You can then say, yes, look, the independent regulators have examined our evidence and we're not just making false claims. You know, this is real. There is a real beneficial effect and it is safe. And so, you know, it's a difficult thing to go through regulation just because it is uh, timely and very expensive. The regulation itself is not the expensive bit. The clinical trial that you need to do to generate the evidence to satisfy the regulators is the expensive bit. But that's entirely appropriate. And, you know, broadly speaking, as long as you set the bar appropriately high for the way in which you build the software and then the way in which you structure the trial, you are amassing an evidence base that you know, more or less if you're doing it for the FDA or if you're doing it for the uh, European Medicines Agency or the MHRA in the UK, they're more or less equivalent with respect to the standard that they hold. So you go for the top level and then by and large, you can use that evidence base elsewhere around the world um, because it'll satisfy many other systems. So, you know, it's an important thing to do. It's important for to help people, both the patients and the doctors, to recognize that this thing is real. It genuinely does benefit people and safely. And it's also, you know, a natural thing to kind of separate the wheat from the chaff in terms of where is there real evidence of benefit versus things that, you know, may nonetheless be helpful, but you can get in debates about to what extent that's placebo or whatever else. I'd like to add something 
here, try and summarize some of the points that Matt brought up and David brought up. I think there is this starting almost at the end of the line, which is that a digital therapeutic is cleared for a disease treatment claim. So for Matt and Achille, it's for attention deficit disorder. That is the that they've gone through the regulatory approval so that they can then claim that their product, so their software product, treats ADD. Now, granted, they're working on other diseases, but and you know, Headspace, for example, we know that if you spend time doing mindfulness or if you meditate, then it helps with various different things. But Headspace can't sit there and claim that the direct-to-consumer app that they have that hasn't gone through the FDA process can treat certain things. And so I think that is the big distinction between you know, digital therapeutics and then digital medicines, if we go by the Digital Therapeutics Alliance framework. That is the kind of two big distinction between them. But then going to, I think, a question that you mentioned earlier on, Tom, which was around you know, why are digital therapeutics interesting? It's If you look at a lot of the digital therapeutics products that have come up onto the market, they're hitting therapeutic areas or let's say, specialty areas that haven't really been touched by traditional pharmaceutical firms up until this point, especially for the monotherapies. So if you take PEAR, you've got RESET and RESET-O. So if you take RESET, that is in the addiction space for cannabis, alcohol, etc. There are no good treatments for those diseases. For ADD, there are not great treatments for that disease. And so it makes perfect sense to try and start there because it's low-hanging fruit, there is a gap in the market, and then add in uh, what David said about the fact that smartphones are becoming more and more ubiquitous within the population, which means that you can target big swathes of the population through these products. So you kind of get this almost perfect storm between all of those things. Just picking up on that, I think it's just interesting to note that, yeah, I absolutely agree with all of that. I also think one of the reasons why digital therapeutics are starting where they are is because they are digitizations of psychological therapies in the main. And so it's interesting that, you know, we have learned as a species how to put into software the interactions that a human needs to have to learn to change their beliefs or psychological behaviors in a way that is beneficial. For me, that does two things. On the one hand, it's great because actually, you know, as a clinician, you'll know that you're supposed to look at a patient holistically. And so when you have a new diagnosis of a condition, you know, it used to just be they write the prescription on the green piece of paper, tear it off the pad, give it to the patient and away they go. These days, actually, you know, the therapeutic package for the patient is not just a tablet. It may be a tablet, but it's also likely to be some psychological therapy, maybe some lifestyle advice, behavioral therapy, et cetera, et cetera. You're trying to treat the whole patient. And, you know, just because I've got uh, insomnia, the effect of that is huge, right? It doesn't just mean that I'm tired during the day. It also has effect on my mood. It has effect on all sorts of other things. So you want to try to, to treat the whole human. So the digital therapeutic in the kind of cognitive and the psychological space gives a new tool as part of that sort of therapeutic package to people which is great. There's also a question in my mind as to if, or or rather, I think probably when, are we going to work out how to move digital therapeutics beyond just the sort of cognitive space with respect to the things that it is delivering therapy for? 
And, you know, I start to think about whether there could be neurological things to do with getting people to have, you know, interactions with their smart device, whether it's, you know, using their hands or moving in a certain way where the accelerometer on the phone can know that that's happening. And so effectively, they're doing, you know, physiotherapy and the phone knows whether or not they're doing the movements right. And so that's the kind of next expansion that I think is going to come beyond just the sort of the starting point, which is the psychological therapies. But even if we look at digital therapeutics and and take it from kind of the -the over-the-counter, as we've been using that analogy, the -the over-the-counter versions of these, we're seeing a lot of that technology already being built into some of these platforms, especially in like chronic disease management type platforms that one could essentially consider a over-the-counter DTX because it's ultimately helping improve patient outcomes by or through adherence, right? And there, we're already starting to see biometrics being measured. And one of those is sleep and movement, right? And AI applied to that is, is already able to, to inform patients that, hey, you know, in order to lead a healthier lifestyle and keep for diabetics, for example, keep your blood glucose levels in check, you need to exercise more. You need to move more. You haven't moved enough this, this week or this today or whatever finite period of time. But I think that goes to a good point in that our, the things that afflict us as humans have changed over the you know, last hundred or so years. You know, we went from a healthcare system that dealt with pretty acute things, such as your typical accidents and then infections, to now dealing with these conditions that, don't get me wrong, it's not like they didn't exist before, but they have now become very much the heart of the type of healthcare that we deliver and try and treat as clinicians. And a lot of those chronic conditions are a direct, you know, are directly caused by the way in which we live our lives, by the environments that we live in, the way in which we engage with them, the behaviors that we engage in. And I think that's really where digital therapeutics start to come into their own because it isn't like it's a pill that's treating a biological problem. It's a digital solution that is helping you live a better, more healthy lifestyle or do more healthy behaviors that will help you with your chronic condition. So I think that is one thing to kind of just keep in mind when thinking about digital therapeutics. There's also the payment mechanism because you're right. There are products that are being used by health systems or by, by your GPs for example, to improve medication adherence. And yes, you could sit there and argue that they will produce a therapeutic effect as a a supplement to biopharmaceutics. But one, they haven't gone through the trials that Matt and the Achille team will have had to have gone through to actually get their product across the line. And a big part of that is the trials need to use existing and approvable endpoints. And those endpoints are then used in the application process to get that label to treat a disease. And I think that distinguishes these digital therapeutics products from everything else, because you can then go to traditional pharmacies, pharmacy benefit managers, payers, no matter who that is, be it a single payer system or private payer systems, and have them treat these products as if they were traditional drugs. And you've gone through exactly the same process and rigor and approval mechanism. And so I think having that conversation and saying, okay, we want to be paid in the same way as a drug is a much easier conversation and much simpler kind of payment route than 
someone who helps with medication adherence going to each and every health system and saying, we can improve your patient's medication adherence. Okay, now we're going to figure out contracting. This is our pricing. And I think it's just, it's a convoluted, difficult conversation to have. Whereas the digital therapeutics sit in their own with that approvable endpoints that they've been shown to change, FDA approval or regulatory approval, and then traditional reimbursement pathways. I would love to add one thing. I'm so glad you brought up endpoints and outcomes, because that's something that we're excited about. Kelly, I'm personally excited about and have seen kind of uh, develop as we've gone through these trials is recognizing that many of the outcomes and measurements and endpoints that, that exist were designed for drugs or other types of therapy. And because this is something entirely new, we're quickly learning new outcomes and new measures that actually matter more to people. Like, And so as we have gone through these trials and as we're now out in the real world, we've essentially entered a giant real world clinical trial. We're going to learn even more deeply about these populations and this disease and these parts of the brain and what actually mattered to patients, parents, caregivers, uh, physicians in a way that you wouldn't in a clinical trial. So it's, it's wonderful to kind of have that opportunity and have the best of both worlds to be able to stand foundationally on the regulated path, but know that we're about to learn so much more. It's a very exciting time. Yeah. The real world evidence piece is, I think, really great. The regulators certainly and, you know, the big pharma are waking up to the power of real world evidence compared to the slightly contrived uh, evidence that you get from a very rigid randomized control trial of the old style. And it actually links back to one of the earlier points where you know, when you start getting into the nuts and bolts of an RCT, you have a hypothesis, you structure it for the null hypothesis, and then you do, you collect data. And, you know, proof in science is a p-value of less than 0.05. What does that mean to the layperson? That means that the finding that you found in the experiment, you are confident that it will only happen by chance no more than one in 20 times. Right. So it's 19 times out of 20, it's because it's a real effect, not just a, you know, you flip the coin and it happened to land the right way up. The thing is, one in 20, that's not very much. I mean, if you actually think about it psychologically, to me, that doesn't feel like proof compared to, right, can I scientifically prove to you that an elephant won't fall out of the sky? Or let's go with this. Can I scientifically prove to you that the sun is going to rise tomorrow morning? I mean, yeah, let's leave aside physics and all the rest of it for a minute, but just from the observation, right? Just from the data. Well, no, I haven't done an RCT around whether or not the sun is going to rise tomorrow, but it has happened reliably so many times that just the sheer force of the weight of the data suggests that it's vanishingly unlikely that it's not going to happen tomorrow. And I really think we're going to have to start moving towards a world where the volume of data plays a, a part in the conversation around proof. Because actually, you know, as we start moving into these new models of treatment delivery and, and therefore having to prove the treatments, the old model of doing a randomized control, you know, double blind trial with a p-value of less than 0.05, it just starts seeing, seeming, you know, more and more and more outdated. Okay. Now, I think the audience are going to have a pretty good idea of what a digital therapeutic is and the challenges around getting it regulated. The challenge after that, I assume, is getting accepted both by the end patient, but also by the healthcare industry. So does anybody have anything to share on how those challenges are or will be overcome? I can speak a bit about kind of, I guess we can call it adoption, engagement, 
compliance. I guess there's so many different words for it, but you know, when we're in our clinical trial phases with products, of course, compliance is is the word we're using. You know, we want to make sure that all the data is comparable and everyone's following protocol. But a big part of why we exist as a company is that uh, we believe another advantage of digital therapeutics is uh, engagement. And we use that word in a few different ways. One of the most important ways is simply this. We have potent medicine. We know this works. We know this helps children in this case. It only helps them if they take it, right? And back to David's point earlier, like you have half people take their pills, even when their lives depend on it. It's crazy, right? So creating experiences using what we've learned in the entertainment industry for many, many years to create experiences that are engaging, that keep people focused and keep them wanting more. uh, We kind of like martial arts that, right? And use that for great good here. So that's one of the many reasons that, you know, I listed before why a video game is a great vessel in this case, because we can highly control that perfect balance between challenge and reward and give great feedback, high frequency feedback, and we can cater the actual narrative and fiction and colors and worlds that we're we're giving to people so that it's about as highly engaging as anything can be, really. Some people claim video games have an engagement problem the other way, right? Or if with gaming addiction and like, you know, our products lock themselves out after 25 minutes a day, you're not allowed to play anymore. So anyway, the point being that we invest a lot, you know, if you look at the company, it's almost, there's like the clinical validation pillar. And then there's this other pillar holding up the company, which is the quality of the user experience, the engagement. And that's not just for the core therapy, which in this case is a video game, as David mentioned earlier there's a whole suite of packaging that comes around that for the caregiver and the physician and the teacher. We have separate apps for tracking behaviors and symptoms. We have, you know, Achilles care, which is, you know, a a management dashboard of all the data from different places, coaching, things like that. So we're doing everything we can and applying everything we know from the entertainment industry to every point of the patient journey. And so I guess that's another way to think about it that we look at it is it's looking at the way medicine has been practiced and and questioning every point along the way and saying, could this be better? Could technology make this actually enjoyable maybe here? (laughs) And so that's why we built really what effectively is, you know, a a creative studio, a game studio within our company so that we can apply those skills to different parts of the patient journey. And Matt, I think to your point as well, it's really cool when you've got such an engaging therapeutic like what Achille has, right? In the form of a game and it's new, it's innovative, and you can change it up and keep it fresh for the the patient to consume and, and become engaged with. And we've seen on the flip side of that where you've got some fairly, I want to say mundane, but more routine type of therapeutics, which revolve around brain injury and cognitive function regain. They're routines that you need to go through. And there's unfortunately not a great way to gamify that. But To your point before about kind of connecting that circle of care with the physician and potentially even a caregiver or a parent, I think is really key. And especially in the instance where maybe not the most engaging type of an application to use. Fortunately, in the U.S., we've got CPT codes that that permit physicians to get reimbursed for reviewing dashboards and ensuring that patients are are adhering to their their medications or, or their prescribed therapeutics. So we can facilitate that much easier. But there are other areas in the world, uh, I believe, David, in, in the UK, for example, where that isn't necessarily the case. And, and there's other hurdles that need to um, be overcome there in a very creative way. Yeah, it's a real, the engagement piece is a real challenge. You know, we all know there are some apps that just hook you immediately. There's a whole bunch of apps that you download and you use for a couple of days, a couple of weeks, and then all of a sudden you just, you realize you haven't opened it for three months. When that app is meant to be your treatment, 
that second scenario, that's bad, right? <laughs> so finding ways to get people to keep using them, particularly when, you know, the, as you say, the thing that they have to do is a bit more mundane or a bit more repetitive and, and there isn't an option to gamify it, let alone it actually be a game and the game be the therapeutic thing. I think that's one of the big challenges for the industry. How do we get people to keep using it when, frankly, it's just another thing on their to-do list? And there are all sorts of lessons that can be learned from marketing and from you know the, the app industry as a whole and from health psychology and that kind of stuff. But there's no silver bullet. It's going to be hard. And, and it actually comes back to one of the things that uh, we touched on earlier on, which is that you know, typically, if you were just making an app that was nothing to do with healthcare and you wanted to find how to make it stickier, well, you could put two very similar but slightly different apps into the world, um, randomize who gets what and see which one works. And it's called A-B testing, right? So you're always just making little tweaks to the app and seeing which one works better and which one works better and kind of iterating quickly. It's hard to do that with a therapeutic because you can't just start randomly changing it. You can't change it when it's in a clinical trial, you are testing a thing and it has to stay the same while it's in the trial. And then once you've got the result of the trial and you've got your approval from the regulators, well, the approval you have is for the thing that you did in the trial, for the thing that you tested in the trial. So when it's out in the wild, you can't then start iterating on it if that might have the, the impact of changing whether or not it works or whether or not it's safe, which is what the regulators care about. So the tool set is, is a little bit sort of restricted or it's not fully restricted. There are some, there are some innovative ways of getting around this. But yeah, the, the engagement piece is, is hard and there are things we can do and things we can learn from others. But there is some stuff that we're having to kind of invent a new wheel for. Yeah, I want to throw in a couple of considerations before we end the episode. And first, I want to ask, how do we overcome issues or challenges of digital therapeutics interacting either with other digital therapeutics or even other traditional therapeutics? That's my first question. And then the second one will be around prescription. Should these be prescribed in the same way as a traditional medicine? I think struggled with initially and then also see it as a, a problem that I think the digital therapeutics industry will need to come to terms with at some point is right now there are relatively few digital therapeutics products out on the market that have been approved, you know, sticking with the US market that have got FDA approval. And all of those products tend to sit in different realms and different specialty areas. And so it's unlikely that someone who's on Pairs Reset's product is going to be on Achilles Digital Therapeutic. So the idea of the two of those interacting is not really going to be top of mind. But I think as the industry progresses, as more products come onto the market, get through the process, and you know, a lot of people, I don't want to get into the specifics of this, but you know, sticking with the US, with the US focus, there are two main types of approval mechanism. There's the one that Matt and team would have gone through, which is a de novo route, which is a long and arduous process because you're the first thing that's on the market and you have nothing to compare to. And therefore, you need to put a lot of effort into showing that because you're the first one, you've done the requisite things to show that you're safe and effective. But once a product's on the market, then it can act as what's called a predicate. And that allows other companies to come onto the market through a 510k route, for example, where they use the product that's already out on the market to show that they can produce a smaller 
application pack and use the evidence from the, the product that's already out there to market their own. And so new products will start to come out on the market. And so I think this is something that if digital therapeutics manufacturers haven't already started to think about, they will need to start thinking about that once one's out there, there will be more coming down the line. And therefore, how do they all interact with each other? If you think about you know, what David and I were talking about, a lot of the things that digital therapeutics can definitely help with, which are chronic diseases, tend to come in clusters that your hypertensive patient, so your person with high blood pressure, doesn't only have high blood pressure, they also have diabetes, and they may also have had a heart attack, or they may also have had a stroke, or they may also have other comorbid conditions. And so, you know, you can definitely see in 5, 10, 15 years time, a digital therapeutics to help with, well, diabetes already exists, the hypertension, let's say the prior stroke and the rehab. And so if they're all nudging and pushing and trying to change behaviors in certain ways, how do they all interact with each other? Biopharmaceutics interact in fairly distinct ways. And so we know that if a patient is on drug A, we shouldn't prescribe drug B because it interacts and either you know, it causes bad harm or reduces the effect of the overall medication. You know, what do we know yet about how digital therapeutics interact with each other? And so I think it's going to be interesting to see how the industry addresses this problem, you know, as time goes on. On to the final question. And we actually end every Shine episode with this question. I want to look five to 10 years into the future. And I would like to understand what everyone believes will be the most interesting or exciting application of digital therapeutics on that time horizon? And let's start with David Box. That's a really good question. I think we're, we're going to be looking at technologies that we vaguely understand today and that we're only in our, in our infancy of, of experimenting with today in general in different applications. And that is going to potentially be a combination of implantables and, and wearables and software. I think that yeah, it's a tough question to answer because, again, we're, we're talking about technologies that don't even exist today. If we look back five, 10 years from where we are today, we wouldn't have imagined that we'd have 20 billion touchless UIs in the marketplace necessarily, right? That technology, as an example, and is, is also that encompasses mobile phones, that technology in and of itself has become a game changer for digital health. So really... I don't know. I don't have a great answer. For once, I don't have a great answer for this. And on to David Cox. Actually, referring back to something Shwaran said earlier on, I kind of talk about 20th century medicine was broadly about viruses and bacteria. 21st century medicine is going to be about lifestyle and tackling the things that we are doing that are making ourselves ill. And so kind of a little bit to David's point just now, kind of trying to crystal ball gaze is hard because you don't know what you don't know because it hasn't been invented yet. But I would say it's going to be less about treatment and more about prevention. And so, for instance, you know, right now we're at the stage where you talk to your speaker and you order your groceries. And we're starting to see, you know, smart fridges that will kind of have an idea about when you're running low on something and, and add it to your order. So when you accelerate that forwards, actually, when your technology knows enough about you to know what's bad for you and what's good for you and is automating enough of your life, then it's going to be 
ordering the right types of foods for you to eat at the right times so that you know you don't go to the fridge and think mm, what kind of junk food can I eat now because there isn't any junk food in the fridge because your technology didn't order it for you so you you are having the default perfect diet for you now because the technology knows what that is and automates that for you Warren so I think one of the most exciting I think avenues for digital therapeutics and maybe push towards the 10-year mark as opposed to the five-year mark. It's actually this idea that you know you have, going back to the Digital Therapeutics Alliance framework, you have digital health, digital medicine, and digital therapeutics. And there is always this focus on either digital therapeutics as an individual class or the digital medicine side as an individual class. But if you think about what sits within the digital medicine realm. It's your digital diagnostics, your digital biomarkers, your remote patient monitoring. And I actually think that right now those things are acting all a little bit as distinct entities, but over the coming years, they will all start to coalesce. And so you will have digital biomarkers that show very early signs of a disease that we wouldn't really have been able to spot before because... I mean, in the UK, the idea of doing an annual physical or an annual wellness check is kind of non-existent. Lots of 20, 30, 40-year-olds barely see their family practitioner at all. So how do you know that they have an early sign of a disease? You don't, until they turn up with some kind of problem and they're already further down the line. Whereas this massive use of mobile phones of new technologies that is ubiquitous and we can start to put in digital diagnostics and digital biomarkers to look at early signs of disease in a way that you don't need to turn up to your family practice. Suddenly, there is this possibility that instead of trialing a drug first, a biopharmaceutic, you can trial a digital therapeutic. So you have none of the biopharmaceutic side effects to worry about. You know, we talk about conservative care, medical care, surgical care as kind of broad buckets in clinical medicine when we think about offering treatments to a patient. And right now, conservative, a lot of the time means sit and wait, or maybe we'll send you to therapy, but the wait list is six months and, you know, let's just see how it goes. And if it doesn't disappear, then we'll try medicine. Whereas now, I think there is this opportunity for digital therapeutics manufacturers to say, okay, we can spot this disease early. Let's build a product to see if we can reverse it. And the most obvious example that comes to mind is we know that for pre-diabetics, arguments of the criteria aside, behavioral modification and or metformin can reverse prediabetes and pull your sugars back into the normal, normal sugar range. You know, surely to me, that is a prime area for digital therapeutics manufacturers to kind of do the same thing and become that first step product rather than being at last, last of mind, oh, actually, there's this thing that you could try, maybe give it a go. And finally, with for Matt. I wish we had another hour just on this one. This is so much fun. Such great, great perspectives on everything. I you know, wholeheartedly agree with you know, everything that you guys have talked about. I would love to see that future, right? Where it is, it's really about preventative medicine, right? And using this technology that we're already interacting with. The data is there. It's just, can we grab it and can we use it in the right way? I totally agree with that. But I'll focus on the cognition part, just I think for, to add to this conversation, I think I personally want to see medicine looking and feeling and acting very different five, 10 years from now, unrecognizable. I want my children to look back at the way we practiced it before and kind of laugh and be like, what were you guys thinking? But in the case of cognition, I really do believe there's a future where people on earth take their 
mental health and their cognitive health just as seriously as they do their physical. And we're not there yet. We're trending there. There's things happening in the world that are giving that a kick in the pants right now. And that seems like a very obvious near future. And I think if we can we can get that right, a lot of this preventative medicine, a lot of these ideas that you guys are talking about can, can come to fruition uh, because there's so many comorbidities that we know now that actually stem from cognitive issues that end up being a physical problem down the road. And I think a lot of the really smart like insurers and payers out there already know this and, and see this and realize that you know investing early in things like that in our behaviors and the way our lifestyle, as David put it, pays dividends down the road for our health. So yeah, I really do hope that that we're entering a future where medicine looks really different and that it's not, uh, our CEO says this a lot, that it doesn't have to be scary all the time, right? (laughs) That a lot of interacting with our medicine can actually be early and enjoyable and preventative. That is a great note to finish on. It doesn't have to be scary. Again, thank you so much to our experts, both internal, David, and our external experts, Sharon Patel, Matt Ominick, and David Cox. It was an enlightening discussion. And remember, if you would like to learn more about the future of healthcare, we have an awesome trend report entitled Beyond Just the Pill, Nine Emerging Trends Disrupting Healthcare. To claim that, simply send an email to healthcare at star.global. That is healthcare at star.global. And of course, if you are listening on your favorite podcast listening app, please rate and review. Please give us your honest feedback. It really helps us improve the show. And finally, thank you so much for listening.